entered the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. Timothy Good, I've been following your work for many years, and I'm curious, what drew you to the UFO subject in the first place? Well, I've always been mad about space travel and uh, aviation since as long as I can remember, actually. So when an American cousin gave me a book called The Flying Saucers Are Real by Major Donald Kehoe, I really took note because there were so many sightings reported by military and civilian pilots, frequently confirmed by air traffic controllers via radar, of course. So that's it, and I haven't looked back since. And then later on, that was back in 1955, so it's 52 years ago, yeah, 52 years ago, about. And then a few years later, I read the book by Captain Edward Ruppelt, who had headed Project Blue Book, the first uh, Project Blue Book. And that astounded me even more because here was this Air Force intelligence officer writing soberly about astounding reports from uh, military and civilian pilots. So that's it. And I've been hooked ever since. Hmm. You know, it's funny, coincidental. I was 11 years old and my brother leaves on his coffee table a copy of one of Kehoe's books, Flying Saucers Uh from Outer Space. Right. I read the book at 11 years of age and I was hooked. And here I am about 400 years later. And I'm still carrying on and still doing this thing. Now, having read that book, you got kind of really interested in this thing. But at what point did you say, you know what, I'm going to start researching. I'm going to write books on the subject, whatever. Where did you do that? I started to do research when I was still a student at the Royal Academy of Music. And that was a period, actually, when I read the the um, Repelt book. So I started investigating cases like 1962, something like that, 1961, 1962, during my travels around the country. And I met various people uh, who had encounters. And uh, so that's when it actually started seriously. As far as books are concerned, the first book I wrote wasn't published until 1983. And it took me quite a few years to write. And it was co-published and co-authored with uh, Louise Zinstag. It was a book about George Adamski called George Adamski, The Untold Story, and uh, including uh, um, Louise's, uh, Lou, or Lou as she calls herself, her own experiences, and she knew Adamski very well. She was one of his co-workers. She was his, his co-worker. And I wrote a sort of critical evaluation of Adamski's claims, mostly positive, I have to say. Okay, well, that even raises a subject here. I've followed Adamski or Adamski's claims through the years. I've saw him. He liked, I believe. He preferred Adamski. I stand corrected. Adamski. No, no, you said it first, I believe. Okay, I'll go. (laughs) Sure, I'll go with whatever, you know, his family would have preferred. Mm -hmm. I saw him on TV a number of times. He seemed like a pleasant gentleman, but I never could get past his photographs, which were patently fake. And David's an imaging expert, very well-known imaging expert. So I couldn't look at the core possibility that maybe he had some kind of experience. And maybe then he... The only thing I would have said charitably, and let's ask you about this, is that maybe he had some kind of encounters or experience early on, and maybe he embellished them a little bit. Quite a few people do that, um, Edward Meyer being a classic example, but I have to disagree with David about uh, his imagery analysis. I've done some. A very fine optical physicist has done some work, a qualified optical physicist, Bill Sherwood, who was 
the senior project en- uh, development engineer at Eastman Kodak, and he could not find fault with the Adamski photographs nor the films that he'd taken, and neither could several of the optical physicists at the Eastman Kodak f- company in Rochester when Adamski was taken there with Bill Sherwood to show his film and uh, to get some comments from them. And that film was the last one he took in February 1965, a color movie in the presence of uh, my friend Madeline Rodifer, who's still alive and still will happily talk about the incident. And there were three uh, U.S. government officials present when that uh, incident took place. That was in February 26 of 1965 in Silver Spring, Maryland. I know Madeline very well, and I can find no fault with the film. I've spent years studying all the Adamski material and I'm I'm not a professional photographer but I have earned money doing photographs and I know a lot about it and I know especially nowadays with uh, digital technology the sky's open you can fabricate anything but um, I do disagree I'd like to know what uh, David's objections are Ray his uh, imagery analysis well I don't have that footage right in front of me so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tear it apart I've, I've seen two of the clips that Adamski shot. One specifically I can recall was where you have this object swinging in a pendulum motion. Well, it looks at a fairly low altitude and there is a... It is a very low altitude and it's a, it's a dreadful reproduction because all the copies of the films are not light enhanced so it looks like just a, you know, a cutout, a cardboard cutout. It is not. Well, here's the thing. Well, uh, again, I, I know what I, you know, I can only base this on, on what I've actually seen. Yeah. And there is a part specifically, I'll, I'll, I'll qualify this, is a part where what appears to be a piece or a ball or something on the bottom sort of plops out. It's going um, back and forth periodically, and it's also distorting as it does so, that the entire craft distorts in that vicinity as well. Well, that certainly wasn't my finding of that, of that one particular piece of footage. Now, I, I'll say, let me qualify this. Yeah. I didn't have access to original film, which, okay. of course, is the only thing that's ultimately useful. Right. Anything that you see that's been compressed has undergone yeah. the artifacts of uh, discrete cosine transform compression, in the case of MPEG or JPEG. Yeah. Um, so I'll yeah, qualify I that. But based on what I've seen... Um, I shall send you via JPEG, uh, if you're interested, a frame taken from the original movie. I can't give you the original movie because that was stolen, according to my information. But the, many of the frames were, many excellent uh, copies were made of the actual pictures individually, the actual frames, 8mm frames individually by Bill Sherwood, who is still alive. I, he's, he's elderly, but uh, I expect he'd be glad to talk to you about that. I mean, he was totally convinced after a lot of a lot rigorous analysis, and he decided that the craft, in his opinion, was about 27 feet in diameter. Mm. Furthermore, I was invited to the Pentagon in May 1998 by the then director of the Defense Airborne Reconnaissance Office, and I showed... With my latest book, which I'd given to the general who invited me, General Kenneth Israel, who was the director of the Defense Airborne Reconnaissance Office, uh, I showed him many of the frames which I'd reproduced in my book Beyond Top Secret, and uh, he looked at them and he said, I can't see any way how these could have been faked. These seem genuine to me. Hmm. Well, uh, you know, as far as still images, what I'll, what I'll comment on, and, and, yeah. and this is a bit of an unusual commentary, but uh, I certainly have seen the, the one, or I believe it was the one photograph of the cigar-shaped object with a series of lit discs in front of it. Yes. Um, what I can tell you about that, Timothy, is that I personally have witnessed 
um, in Caracas, Venezuela in 1974, one of these cigar-shaped craft. And oh, right, great. In, in a very strange situation, and a fairly rare one also, and, and it wasn't just me, it was a large number of other people, we witnessed discs come emerge from the bottom of the cigar craft. What I can tell you based on that personal experience, on that direct mm -hmm. viewing of such an episode, is that the, the scale presented in the Adamski photograph of the, the lit discs in comparison to the cigar craft, the scale is completely wrong. Well, you know why, don't you? Are, you? are you familiar with foreshortening in telescopes? Well, absolutely. Sure. Well, some of those craft uh, are not as big as they're shown because they are surrounded by a, a, quite a large corona in some cases, and they are closer to the camera, relatively speaking, than the actual um, mothership. Mm -hmm. But but again, even with foreshortening distortion taken into effect, taken into account, it doesn't read to me as genuine. Now I qualify this as I said. This is based mm -hmm. on a personal experience I had, where uh, the sheer differential in the scale between the discs and the discs that we saw were not lit; they were metallic, they were not emanating light. So you know, I'll, I'll put that qualification in as well. Okay. But with that qualification, I, I find it hard to reconcile the image that he presents versus what I saw in person. There, there, you know, even yeah. with taking into account the issues of foreshortening and and that distortion that that introduces in terms of, you know, of course, this is always a problem when you don't have the second photograph in order to do parallax. Well, he did and, lots of photographs of, of the so-called motherships, as you, as I'm sure you're aware. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, you haven't seen them all. There were lots without the smaller craft. There, were, there was a whole series of them showing a craft just leaving the mothership, which, and the craft was illuminated, whereas the actual cigar was, was not. And he published those first in his Inside the Spaceships book, and uh, they mm -hmm. look absolutely genuine to me and, and correct for the, the type of telescope he was using, which was, you know, quite a powerful uh, reflector telescope. Well, I guess at that point, you know, I, I, I don't know at, at this point in time whether I would say that it's a judicious use of time looking back at all of those photos because, mm -hmm. of course, one, one of the things we have to do is reconcile photographic evidence with things like witness testimony and then also his specific stories. Now, like what you said earlier, Timothy, is exactly correct. At this point in time with... Uh, not only still image manipulation tools, but also digital video manipulation yeah. tools sure. as they are. Uh, any photographic evidence or video evidence is questionable at this point in time. And you can fabricate and manipulate anything to any extent on that... Digital, on digital, absolutely. Science. Absolutely. And to an extent where it'd be almost impossible to even, if you were good enough at it, yeah. it would be impossible to even tell that something has been manipulated. So, yeah, no, listen, uh, no, no argument there, sir. In fact, I, I'm, I'm strongly of the belief that uh, photographic evidence should no longer be admissible in a court of law. It's simply you can't. If, if somebody wants to fabricate something and has the means and yeah. the time, they will. There's no yeah. question of that. So, you know, we have to then, in discussing this topic, Timothy, and one of the reasons I was very uh, excited to have you on the show, I, I've come to believe that you're one of the people who's actually putting together the meta view of what is going on and and moving away from sort of this obscene fascination with specific cases and specific theories and then moving outwards looking at the bigger picture which i think is the more important part of this story which is what is what is really going on versus the perception of what people perceive is going on i think there's a tremendous disconnect there and i think that a lot of your work is pointing us in what i suspect 
is the correct direction to actually uncovering a sense of what is actually happening, which I think for many people is just too dark to even consider. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. Hi, Gene Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Here's our special offer. Because we love Gene and Dave and the Paracast, we are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for 1995, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for 1999. Just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO-6242. Leave me a message. I will call you back. Or if I'm in the office, I'll pick up and just say, hi, I'm a friend of Jeans and Dave's. I listen to the Paracast. Here's my special offer, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're talking to Timothy Glitt, who's author of a number of UFO books, has studied the subject for many years. We started off with a single focus being the Adamski case, largely because that's something that consumed a lot of what I read about when I was very young, and certainly we're still curious about it. But looking at the meta picture that David's raising about what this all means and everything, and that's something that I've been interested in as well. Okay, now we're ready for your response as we go on this journey. Okay. 
specifically what would you like to know about? Well, I know about it. Well, I think I think you do know something about it, Timothy. Um, the pervasive presence of this phenomenon throughout history. This is not. That's, that's a constant. That, right. That's a given. I think. I think it's probably dates back through prehistory. And my, as I have uh, hinted very strongly in the last pages of my latest book, Need to Know, I think that some what we call aliens have been on this planet for much, much longer than have we, mm-hmm. and that they are our progenitors. We are genetically related to them, and they were here, I think, maybe millions of years ago. I don't know. I don't know precisely when, but I think there is some truth to, to, to the legends of um, Atlantis and, and Lemuria. I think, um, you know, whatever the actual tangible evidence, and that, that a lot of that's very specious, as we know, I think uh, there are grounds for believing that there were more advanced civilizations on this planet long before we came on the scene or were genetically upgraded. And and indeed, perhaps if we look at the human history as far as things like theology and religion go, that these stories have also become very distorted over time. And in fact, it appears that there's a good possibility that much of what we call religion or the accepted tenets of religion has essentially been engineered. Yes, and of course distorted by the politicians and the priests of of which which particular era, you know, over the years. So it's very difficult to know exactly what happened, since the the Bible, for example, is written by men. It's not written by God. Mm -hmm. And it's been distorted, it's been mistranslated. Every time the Bible is translated, even in English, since the St. James edition, uh, things get, words get changed, meanings, even meanings get changed. So it's very, it's almost, I would say, impossible to know exactly what was said or what happened in those biblical stories. Timothy, do you think that this contributes to the reason that there is this uh, consistent policy of military cover-up? Do you think that maybe this is a part of religion? Well, no. Specifically about religion. Not specifically about religion, but but in terms of, let's say the military acquires, or or operatives within the military, acquire a certain level of understanding that human history is not what it appears to be. So you have this this sense that, okay, maybe we've got here a crypto-terrestrial species, an unknown species to us coexisting on the planet with us that has manipulated yes. our genetics and our history if we if we find out about this okay this is now a reason to have a policy of absolute secrecy we cannot allow this to be in any way released to the public sure i agree with you in that I mean, case can you, imagine, can you imagine the reaction yeah i think a lot you of know, people can I mean, certainly they they probably modeled the reaction and yeah. this brings us to a very dark place And this is where I think that in what I've read about the work you've done and and what I've read about some of your conclusions, Timothy, is it ridiculous to assume that perhaps people who have this information are not acting entirely out of free will? Um, Indeed. It's quite possible that that to to a large degree the cover-up is being manipulated by uh, the alien intelligences involved. How do we change the discussion then, Timothy? Because when we when we talk about aliens, I think what part of the reason that there is this perception of aliens as an extraterrestrials yeah. is to create a false sense of security. Um, yeah. The idea that if they're aliens, they do things here and then they go away, and we don't have to right. worry about them, right? Yeah. Um, where if 
if what indeed we have is something different, that this would create a sense of unease that would be potentially very problematic in terms of the continuation of systems of control that have been long implemented. What have you discovered in your research, Timothy, that would lend you to believe that there is good reason to think a lot of this is possible? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my information is that uh, elements of the, the military, not just the United States government, but principally the United States government, have had contact, not just the military, but others as well, people in the scientific intelligence community, people perhaps in, in, in the business world, very powerful concerns, are, are well aware of the situation. They are few and far between, let me tell you, since we're dealing with the most sensitive secret, certainly in the United States government here, and there has been contact established, I would say, since the early 1940s, that's, that's my opinion. Have you received any sort of indirect testimonials from people confirming the sense that things are maybe a little out of control? Um, not specifically, but that it's my guess that we are, you know, we are not, uh, we're not really in control of the situation. What then ultimately is the usefulness of even having this discussion? This is this is the part that that I get concerned about, Timothy, is the idea that well because a lot of information has come out and it's encouraged. I mean, when I've, I asked about the cover-up, of course, I've asked, uh, discussed that many times with some of my sources in, in various countries and uh, more, you know, more, more in the United States, I, I would say, but I've, I've covered um, these bases with other, with, in, in other countries. Um, certainly, that it has to be gradual. There is apparently an agenda that there's going to be gradual disclosure of these things, first of all, because there's no way they can sit on it forever. I mean, I was uh, amazed that no more newspapers, uh, news media picked up that, that extraordinary press conference um, mm -hmm. in, in November, um, you know, at the, at the National Press Club um, in D.C. Yeah, with five uh, signings. November the 12th, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely extraordinary, really, you know, but it really received, I have to say, the Washington Times did a serious piece on it, and uh, there were a few other serious articles, but did you see anything in the New York Times about it, or the Washington Post? There was a slightly jokey thing, because Kucinich, as you know, around the same time was asked for his opinion about UFOs, and that set off a whole, a whole spate of ridiculous articles. Well, also that brought about interviews with his godmother, Shirley MacLaine, and right. it was just jokes and after oh she's this crazy old woman and yes. we shouldn't pay attention and that's what happened definitely yeah I agree but to get back to your um, this aspect of, of the interview I think um, there definitely is I can confirm from my own personal experience that there is an alien liaison program that is a fact given that that's the case it's likely that there's going to be a degree of control over who is aware of that information. And this would be done, I would imagine, perhaps largely for the protection of those providing the, um, the information, in other words, uh, the so-called aliens. Well, the other hmm. thing is here, if the alien presence has been here for thousands, millions of years, that maybe right. they are part of this planet, that we are their property, as Charles Fort has suggested in one of his books. If that's the case, why would they even want to disclose anything now? 
Why after all these thousands well, of years? I don't know, but I think mostly I, I would say that the nuclear age has led to an increase um, in information. If you go back to the 50s, we, we were literally on the brink of destroying the planet. And that is the reason, the main reason why there was such a proliferation of sightings all over the world in the 1950s. No question about that. And at other periods of time, like um, I, I can think off the top of my head, like 1967, 1977, 78, when, you know, as we developed more and more nuclear weapons and more nations acquired them, there was concern and they have made their presence known and I think as a sort of a kind of warning, they've also certainly interfered with our weapons uh, launch systems, if you look at some of the ICBMs which have been interfered with at uh, ICBM missile sites, not just in the USA but in, in the former Soviet Union, it's evident that that is a, of major concern and that they perhaps, and I hope they would, intervene if there was some kind of disaster ahead. Well, we, we I know... I hope so anyway. Well, there's the very well-known episode with with the Maelstrom Air Force Base in 1967 that Robert yeah. Solis has talked about extensively. Yes, Does, indeed, yes. Yeah, so it would seem that there is a clearly an ability on their part to intervene and scale things down. I mean, but at, at the same time, Timothy, do you think there's a possibility that if things really got out of control and we did get very close to the brink of a nuclear conflict, that these creatures would take this as an opportunity to let us basically control our own population on this planet without having them having to intervene? That is, that is a, I've thought about that. I've certainly thought about that. And it is a it is a, a, a grim possibility. But I think when people hear about that, though, they think, well, if these creatures wanted to affect us in a way that would rein us in, wouldn't they technologically have the ability to do it? And in fact, some people have even suggested that the rise of certain types of genetic disorders and disease are exactly that. Mm -hmm. Ooh, before we get proceed with that, you just raised a cliffhanger, and because there are cliffhangers, we have to do this. Today, whether you're in business or simply want to share something with friends or family, email and voicemail sometimes just aren't enough. That's why you should try GoToMeeting, a web conferencing solution that will revolutionize how you communicate with your business associates, family, and friends. The ability to host online meetings is an absolute must for today's business. With GoToMeeting.com, it's just like you're all in the same room. Unlimited meetings for one flat rate means you can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. Try it yourself, free for 30 days. Just visit gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. Try GoToMeeting free today. You're a little arrogant with Jesus and David Bailey. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking to Timothy Good, longtime UFO investigator. We'll have a link to his site at theparacast.com so you can check out what he does, what he's written, check out his book. So, okay, are we talking here, David, about negative genetic engineering to kind of put the brakes on something or other? Well, I've, I've started to wonder uh, if this is not only possible but probable. I've even gone so far as to think that perhaps this extreme fear that people have when confronted with these 
things in a real way, not in a way that yeah. you, you know. There, there is a sense of of extreme fear that perhaps I've 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 come to wonder if this fear hasn't been engineered into us as a form of facilitating control. Could be. But when we talk about aliens, let's be clear, there's not just, you know, one or two types of aliens. There could be many, some coming and going, passing through this neck of the woods, keeping a periodic check on what's going on here, others who have a vested interest in this planet. And I mm-hmm. think that's the heart of, of, of uh, another problem, which I sort of was the main theme of my book which was published in 2000 called Unearthly Disclosure, which unfortunately wasn't published in the States, but it's still available there, in which um, I talked about conflicting interests in the control of extraterrestrial intelligence. And my information is, and I've spoken to several people who have confirmed that, that there is a conflict regarding this planet involving other species, you know, some, uh, they are at war with each other. There's a, a conflict going on between certainly two species, maybe more, regarding this planet. What two species are we potentially talking about? Well, I don't know specifically. I, I've, I've not been told. But let's be clear, there are the different types of humanoid extraterrestrials, some of them very, very similar to Homo sapiens and others quite different, as we know, the so-called greys, which are not always grey. In Alien Base, I covered the vast arrays of extraterrestrial beings that have been reported um, over the years and, um, you know, the little greys with bug eyes, so so popular. In fact, you know, there's, there are many variations on those types and they're not all grey skin. Um, there are varieties. Some of them appear to be biological robots, in my opinion, like the type that uh, Travis Walton encountered back in 1975, 76, I think it was. They appear to be constructed biological robots, some of them. I wanted to ask you something here about the form and shape of these entities, and that is back in the 50s we had various people claiming contact with humans. You know, yeah. and they, the humans look like, to some degree, Michael Rennie in the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still. <laughs> and they said, We're, it's a wonderful film. They're remaking it with Keanu Reeves playing the Michael Rennie role, and I'm worried about oh, that. Okay. Oh, okay. You know, Michael Rennie, I think, was such a great... He was wonderful, wonderful. He was a wonderful actor. I just kind of worry about that. Yeah. But the message... That's my, favorite. That's my favorite science fiction film. Yes, I agree with you in many respects. Now, mine is... Oh, what, that's, that's good serendipity. Uh, okay, mine. so we have a trio of agreement here. Okay, so... And this goes back to Adamski, but it could be Howard Manger, it could be anyone. And right. that is the entities claim to come from a nearby planet in our solar system, like Venus uh-huh. or Mars, which nowadays we realize doesn't make a whole lot of sense considering the conditions of those planets. But the message was the whole I, point. Were they just kind of putting... George Adamski, The Untold Story, which I say was co-authored with uh, Lou Zinstag. I pointed out, you know, how it was, it was almost certain that they didn't originate from the other planets in the solar system, but that they possibly had bases thereon, and they probably gave us some disinformation about I go for hand. the I go for the disinformation. I go for yeah. saying something <laughs> that is accessible. You know. On the other hand, I am convinced that we will find traces of a former civilization on Mars and possibly on Venus. Um, in my book Alien Base, I, I write uh, write up the story of a guy called Albert Coe, who in 1920 encountered uh, an alien being in Canada and had contact throughout the rest of his life with him and I think one or two others of his race who had infiltrated here due to our 
beginning to understand uh, nuclear technology. This was back in 1920. It's a long story, but uh, they said that they came to this particular solar system millions of years ago and colonized Venus and Mars. And then there were problems with climate and so on and so forth, and they, were, they, they, they then came to Earth and they colonized Earth. The other yep. thing I would think here, though, is that, again, that the entities, whoever they are, whatever they are, tell the story that appeals to the percipient. Okay, so maybe yes. a George Adamski couldn't accept that these were beings that were part and parcel of our own planet. So they said, okay, we're from Venus. We're going to have blonde hair because, you know, everybody's influenced by this movie. This is the thing we have to present. But it's not the medium, it's the message. It's all about we've got to stop the nuclear weapons. We've got to stop making war against another and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. Well, I'm convinced that, as I said earlier, that was (laughs) the main reason for the proliferation of, uh, of events and contacts worldwide because of the nuclear thing. So it's not just, I think you, you, you'd agree with me here, I mean, if you were an alien, you'd, you'd sure be bothered, especially if you had bases in the vicinity or, or you lived on the planet concerned. I think you'd be um, very concerned about what the, the guys, uh, you know, the human beings were doing. But, you know, if I came from Zeta Reticuli, you know, I'm 40 light years away, and I didn't have a large presence in the solar system, I could either depending on our morality on that particular planetary yes. system i could say well if the earthlings want to destroy themselves that's fine okay yeah. I, that's okay we'll just record that as part of our historical documents mm-hmm. but if, well sure but if i am here or our race is here and we're participating in their mm-hmm. past and future well then we have to say that this can't be tolerated we've got to do something about it so we will send these messages now since we're talking a little bit about the contacts and messages Howard mm-hmm. Menger now yeah. let me go back in history again one of my longtime friends is Jim Mosley I'm sure you know Jim Mosley right. okay so Jim and I have lunch with Howard Menger now Jim was never kind to Howard Manger in print, but one day mm-hmm. Howard calls Jim and says, let's have lunch. And this is back in the 1960s, and I can tell you almost exactly where it is. Jim had an office at 303 Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. Across the street was one of these neighborhood diners such as they are now it's probably some kind of place where you get a lunch buffet or something but then so we talked to Howard Manger and he says you know what I'm thinking here that these people that I met were government operatives they weren't from Venus or whatever they weren't from other worlds they were our own people and I was part of an experiment so at that point can we assume maybe if Manger was telling us the truth if Adamski was telling us the truth or Adamski if he was telling us the truth, that they were manipulated not so much by them, but by us. Well, this, we have to presuppose all sorts of things, i.e. that they're extremely telepathic and highly advanced technologically, if you say they're sort of just humans or government agents or whatever. I have had my own encounters, um, about three um, over the years, since 1963. The first was in America, the second was in America. I, I would say another since that period, and they were very conclusive to me, I can tell you, and I do not know of any human beings I've ever encountered who could, you know, in the military or or, or where else that, uh, wherever else that, you know, have that degree of telepathy. Can you expand upon that a little bit, the nature of these encounters? 
Sure. My, my first um, experience, I, I was touring the States in the fall of 1963 for about um, two months, I think, two or three months, including Canada, uh, with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. And in November of 63, I can't remember the exact date, but uh, we were in a convoy of buses from Tucson to Los Angeles, which is about 512 miles, I think. And uh, we stopped at a diner halfway somewhere to get to get some supper. And I saw a most extraordinary looking girl waiting in line. And I immediately got the thought that she could be from somewhere else. There was just a, an extraordinary atmosphere about her and also her features were, were very unusual, extremely refined, extraordinary skin. She was quite petite. I can't remember exactly what she looked like now, but I do know that I sent the thought, are you from somewhere else? If so, could you please confirm? Because by that time, I'd read Adamski's books um, and Menger's books and so forth, and I thought, well, it's worth a try. And so anyway, there was no immediate response, but as, as this girl came out of line to drink of something or other, she, in front of, of myself and three other colleagues at a table, she did an extraordinary curtsy and right, right in front of me, bowed and smiled with a very sweet smile, and then her face went absolutely deadpan, and she walked off as if it had never happened. Now, that, you might say, is hardly confirmation of an alien presence on planet Earth. But I'm just relating what happened. And then in 1967, I was with the London Symphony Orchestra, and we had a series of concerts at Carnegie Hall, and we were based at the then Park Sheraton Hotel, which is, I think, on 7th and 59th, or somewhere near Carnegie Hall anyway. And... I had been spending time with Madeleine Rodefer, who had looked after Adamski in the last few months of his life in Silver Spring, Maryland, and I'd been to see her in Washington at that time, and she had said that she herself had, had met some of these beings, and I should myself try an experiment sometimes to send out some thoughts. So one afternoon, I sat in the lobby of the Park Sheraton Hotel in New York, February 1967, and I sent out the thought, if there are any of you guys from elsewhere, please sit down next to me and confirm it. I need the I need this evidence. Words to that effect in my mind, okay? So of course, you know, um about you know, time went by, various people, some of them very strange. I mean you've got to be careful in New York. <laughs> more so now, more so now, a lot more so. Right, okay. Anyway, suddenly this guy comes in, he's about five foot ten, he's immaculately dressed in a charcoal gray suit, straight out of Madison Avenue, immaculate white shirt, dark tie, he had black rimmed glasses, sandy colored hair, he was tanned, slightly tanned, but it looked like that was his, his, his normal complexion as, as opposed to a tan. Anyway, he came and sat down next to me, and the first thing he did was he had an attache case, and he took a, he unzipped that, and he took out the New York Times, opened it in front of him, and he turned over the pages like one every few seconds, but in a very slow, deliberate way, and he folded the paper, put it back in the attache case, closed the zip, and then put his hands in front of him on his, on his knees. 
So I said in my mind, okay, if you're the guy I'm looking for, you're from someplace else, please place your right index finger on the right side of your nose. And no sooner had I thought that than he did just that and he kept it there. So mm. then I'm thinking, ha, huh, what do I do now? And I Was did, this freak out time? It has to be freak out time at this point. No. Okay. No, maybe I was being controlled. I don't know. All I know is that I, I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything. I just sat there. And people say, well, you know, Tim, why didn't you, why didn't you talk to the guy? And, and to this day, I regret that. But if I tell you about the next experience, but before I do that, if you like. I'll tell you what, before I, you do that. Yeah. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Timothy Good, veteran UFO researcher who has written a number of books on the subject, has been involved in this for, I guess, 50 years since he read a book by Major Donald Kehoe in the 1950s. So many of us got our start in the UFO field with books by Major Donald Kehoe. Okay, so you see the guy do the thing with his nose in answer yeah. response to yeah. your mental request. Okay. Right. So he sat there silently, as did I, and eventually he got up and he looked at me just very seriously. And then he went to a sort of display stand that they had in the hotels in those days where, you know, you could buy, buy odd things and so forth. Anyway, he then he just walked out of the, of the, main, uh, the main lobby. I never saw him again, but I'd recognize him, whereas I can't remember the features exactly of the girl in 1963. I remember this guy very, very well indeed. But I have not seen him since. And that was the end of it, really. But the year before last, in 2006, I, I had an experience in a certain country. I'm not going to give the name of the country, but it was in Europe. It wasn't in the United States. When um, I was addressing a group of retired scientists, politicians, military personnel, and so forth at, in, in a certain location. And there were about 80 people there. And it was the first time that the UFO subject had been debated. And there was quite an amount of opposition, considerable opposition to the, to the whole thing, UFOs. You know, as I say, retired university professors, some current, actually, retired politicians, military personnel, and... Uh, it was actually very interesting, but I was I was the the, the main speaker and in sort of at, at this debate, and I spoke for 35 minutes or so, showing slides and everything, and then it was opened up to the floor, and various people spoke, 
including, I remember a couple of psychiatrists who absolutely said it was outrageous that, uh, you know, uh, this subject should be d debated here, at which point a military guy stood up, a retired military Air Force pilot. We take this stuff very seriously, and uh, I have with me here a colleague who is a pilot who, who encountered these things. It's very serious in the military, even if you think it's a lot of nonsense. Anyway, the last person to speak uh, stood up, and I had been watching him all evening, and I had found him to have certain physical characteristics uh, of the, those people that I'd seen before. So I thought he was unusual. I, I tried a bit of telepathy. There was absolutely no response. Anyway, this man stood up and gave a very interesting, I think he was the last to speak, a sort of dissertation on Earth's future in space. Mm. And for the life of me, I don't know why, but a number of us there cannot remember what this man was saying. Some of it might have been in a different certain language, but that is for sure, since I was in a country that didn't speak, the native English is not the spoken language. But uh, even then, you know, I had an interpreter in my ear all the time, and I knew I was very, very interested in what he was saying at the time, but I cannot remember what he said afterwards, and nor can some of the, the other people remember what hmm. he said afterwards. However, uh, after the, the entire evening had finished, now uh, let me add that we, there were no, uh, no alcoholic drinks were served. Uh, it was a very very long evening. At the end of the evening, about quarter past eleven, something like that, he got up and I approached him, looked him in the eye. I tried to shake his hand, but he did not respond with a handshake as such. He just looked me in the eyes as if I was something the dog had brought in. I gave him my business card and I said to him, you know, I think you have a great deal of knowledge. That's all I said to him. But he just looked at me. He said absolutely nothing at all. And I do feel that that person was very interesting. Okay. Now, the people you've seen here, now, I gather from what you're saying that you recognize something about them, their demeanor, their look, whatever, that mm -hmm. clues you in on the possibility that they are mm, aliens, visitors, whatever. Now... Yeah. I, of course, don't seem to attract that kind of attention. Maybe I'm lucky. But is there something that you could explain to our listeners that leads you to believe or expect that this is the case, these are aliens? Well, I would say number one is telepathy. That's, um, I would say, the essential difference. I mean, I wouldn't want to get into a, a very detailed description of features and things like that because unless you'd had some sort of experience, you really wouldn't notice much at all um, uh, about these people. And other than the certain things, you know, that I am prepared to talk about, which is they usually have very, very uh, refined, very refined features. Okay, why are you not prepared to talk about well, I wouldn't. This. I wouldn't want to give them away. All right. But I think, I mean, I think I probably already said enough in my books. I have, to, I have given, you know, uh, uh, descriptions up to a point, but I wouldn't want to give everything away. You wouldn't want to disturb them if they are what you think they are? No, no. Well, no, I'm quite sure they can look after themselves. I mean, I'm not alone. There's many people. People say, you know, why don't these guys, instead of talking to, you know, someone like myself or, or uh, farmers in the Brazilian outback, why don't they talk to our government people? Well, of course they have. I have it on, on good information that a number of presidents of the United States have actually had um, encounters with ETs. I don't know if you're familiar with a, a new story, information that's received by uh, Art Campbell about President Eisenhower's uh, meet, brief, uh, meeting with an extraterrestrial in 1955, in February 1955, at Holloman Air Force Base, New Mexico. I find that story very, very credible, and uh, you can read about it um, on the Internet. 
I've been in communication with Art Campbell. I find him and his sources credible. And uh, Eisenhower also, there's a lot of information indicating this, also had a, a face-to-face with ETs at Muroc Air Force Base, later Edwards Air Force Base in California, a year previously, in February 1954. So, and in my latest book, Need to Know, I've got um, a description of uh, President Kennedy being taken to an Air Force Base in Florida in 1961-62, where at his own request, to see actual alien bodies and craft that that had been retrieved. Now there are stories, of course, that when Jimmy Carter said he had seen a UFO and maybe he yeah. promised he'd get more information, then he becomes president and we hear nothing more about it. And certainly we right. had those strange indications in the speeches by Ronald Reagan yeah. that maybe we should be getting together to prepare for possible alien invasion. Was he dropping hints or just saying yes, something? Definitely, okay. in my opinion. But do you definitely. think in general here that the presidents of today, Clinton and now Bush and whoever comes next, maybe it'll be Clinton again, who knows, that these days they're getting this information or are well, these people you, in responsible you. parties just not telling them? I don't think the present incumbent um, has had contact, but I may be wrong about that. Um, certainly, his his father, the previous president, Herbert George Herbert Walker Bush, was, I think, very, very well informed and had been exposed to, to the most sensitive material about the subject as, as, you know, head of CIA and so forth. And I think others, too, may have had um, similar experiences. But um, I don't know about the president incumbent. What I can tell you is that about three years ago, three or four years ago, a friend of mine who is a good friend of President Bush asked him, Bush, at the White, at a White House party. He said, come along, you know, tell me, you know, have you been, have you been, um, you know, what, what, what about the UFO thing? You know, my interest and this, this friend. He's a journalist and um, has known Bush since boyhood and everything. He said, you know, have you been, you know, have you been sort of uh, told anything, you know, by anyone? And Bush sort of stiffened and said, ask Cheney. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think he'd say that about an awful lot, actually, but not just right. UFOs. But in oh, any sure. event, sure. in any event, um, I feel that uh, the vice president has a great deal more information than, than the president. Well, if you try to understand some of the actions that these guys take, Timothy, I mean, you almost get to believe that these guys know things that to them indicate that, yeah, let's do whatever we want because it's not going to matter anyway. And and this is, you know, you look at the actions of certainly our current administration, not to turn this into the political hour on the Paracast, but it often seems like a lot of their actions under any normal set of parameters would be considered irrational. Absolutely. And it, it often occurs to many of us, I think, that maybe we don't really know why they're taking these actions uh, because we're going on information that is accessible. But maybe these guys have a deeper level of information. Not maybe. Clearly they do. Yes. I mean, but, but that said, why would we would believe that any president would have access to this information given that this yes. is an elected position that lasts no more than eight years? It would seem right. like... Yeah. They would not have access, right? I mean, that, that's, I think that's the assumption, that they would not be able to get to any of this information. Yeah. But also maybe the perception of this 
other organization. Is it the CIA? Is it a silence group? I mean, we had always the legends of a silence group that was involved in keeping the UFO secrecy. This goes back it's to the 50s. Just, yeah, yeah, it's not just CIA. Um, elements of the CIA, certainly, but there are other groups. Vested interests, big business, you know, you're, you're familiar with all the conspiracy theories. Um, I think there are, I mean, you know, big business governs the military, does it not? Well, um, yeah, at this point, we live in a corporate feudal state. I think those yes. of us... The military-industrial stu- complex, yeah. I think, is a, is a reality, which that was, Eisenhower certainly warned about. Right, when his final speech, or one of his last speeches, yes. warning about that, as if, again, they're trying to tell us something, and maybe we should heed this. But what about an international conspiracy, that there's a silence group that covers the globe involving a well, number of governments? There could there could well be uh, absolutely, and um, you know the so-called men in black or whatever that does seem to be international. Um, I would suggest that some of those um, so-called MIBs are are from elsewhere or part of those based, you know, the the older civilization that I I referred to at the beginning of this interview. I think that's I think that's quite likely. They will well, certainly would have a vested interest in shutting people up. And, manipulating them or whatever. Well, that's an interesting thing. If we do have this other civilization, the crypto-terrestrials, the Deros and Tiros mm-hmm. from Richard like Shaver. That. Sure. that We have to credit Mac Tony's a UFO paranormal investigator for talking about crypto-terrestrials. But, okay. okay. Or the Deros and Tiros from Richard Shaver. And I knew Richard Indeed, Shaver. Yes. Not well, but no, no, reasonably well. I was one of the last few people he wrote to before his death in the 70s. But anyway, okay. So, these creatures, whatever they are, where are they? Are they lurking in underground bases and caves under the sea? Well, what I was told, um, in the late, let me see now, starting in, in the early 1990s, I got a, a, um, a lot of information in the States from um, a military source, a sort of military journalist, if you like, um, quite respected in, in, uh, in Washington, who himself had been given a lot of information over a period of several years by someone at the Joint Chiefs, Joint Chiefs of Staff level, very high ranking, about what was going on. And um, it was quite shocking information, uh, quite astonishing information, and I published that in, in Unearthly Disclosure. The whole last chapter was, was mostly devoted uh, to what I'd learned over the years about um, the alien presence. And apparently uh, what I learned was that uh, there are several different extraterrestrials, and some of them are here. They are based here. They have undersea locations, uh, some of them very, very large. I was told there were two very large bases in the Pacific Ocean, also in the Atlantic, Caribbean, um, and many in, in, in a number of countries, underground locations, undersea and underground bases, and that they've been here for a very long time, and that there is liaison, and that there has been an, ex- uh, an exchange. Uh, they have given us um, some advanced technology. Mm-hmm. and so on and so forth, a lot more information than that. And that there was a conflict between some of these species regarding our planet, apparently. Mm-hmm. Those are just a few of the things that uh, that I learned. All right, so that, of course, brings up a whole wide variety, Timothy, of, of, of all sorts of questions relating to some of the more extreme claims we've heard along these lines, like the yeah. the notion of the existence of something in Dulce, New Mexico. But... 
the problem is how do you filter what are extreme stories? I mean, you know, it, it seems like there's a nugget of truth in these things. How do you uncover the nugget of truth in the sea of noise? It's very difficult. So uh, I have to say, you, you need to know the people, if, if ideally, who are making these claims. I mean, there are all sorts of outrageous claims on the Internet. I'm trying to think there's a guy called Dan Burrish who's making outstand, outlandish claims. Uh, Absolutely. Know, um, I mean, if anyone asks me what I think of Barish, I say, Dan Rubbish. <laughs> I would have to agree it, with you. It, okay, a lot of nonsense, could, a lot of name a, tall I could tales. Name, I could name a few others, but I, <laughs> I won't. No, but but I think there's a lot of people, a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon and saying, yeah, of course, you know, I'm part of the, you know, and... Uh, you know, I'm part of the liaison program and everything. And uh, when you look at these people and you see the, you know, ludicrous claims they're making, really outrageous. I think David's been accused of being a government agent one time or another, right? Oh, right. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've gotten that a couple of times. Well, because, that, again, we, we see that in the realm of personal experiences, there are these in many cases, extreme experiences that those of us who are skeptical thinkers can't just discount. We, you know, we have these things happen to us, uh-huh. and you know, we try to be reasonable and rational about understanding them and try to, in, in some way, discuss them objectively. But I know that, look, when it comes to underground bases, and, and Timothy, we've discussed this on the show before, it comes down to a very simple fact. Human beings have no deep understanding of what lies below the very top layer of this planet. We just don't know. And that's that's a scientific statement of fact. I've talked about the fact that if the Earth were an orange, we haven't even gotten through the top layers of the skin. Right. You know, what, what's 20 miles down? What's 30 miles down? All we have is theory. We really don't know. Could there be these large bases underground that we have absolutely no clue of? I yes, so. I think it's pretty clearly it's pretty clearly possible. Mm. And once people get a basic grasp of geology, it also becomes clear that geothermal energy could easily power those bases with no need for access to the surface. Right. That's just the reality. Now, sure. of course, when people hear that, they think, okay, let's say you have a some sort of a non-human civilization down below. Why would they even care about what's going on on the surface of the planet? Would they try to intervene if we pushed ourselves towards the brink of a nuclear confrontation? Or would they simply sit back, watch what happens, and say, okay, this is the next chapter in our book. This is what happens to civilizations gone wild. Hey, we're going to break for the hour here. We're talking to Timothy Good, author, UFO investigator. One more hour with Timothy Good coming up on the PowerCast. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! of the Rockoids. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now 
Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. We're back on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We spent a fascinating hour, first hour, with Timothy Good, UFO investigator. He has lots of stuff online, a lot of information about the things he does, his books and everything, and we'll have a link for that at theparacast.com. David. Timothy, uh, in the last segment you mentioned briefly the name Edward Meyer, which is the uh, the original name of Billy Meyer, and he got the tag Billy because uh, apparently his friends felt that he uh, his crazy wacky life made him a colorful character like Billy the Kid I guess uh-huh. was maybe one of his heroes but um, you brought up his name uh, we've uh, we've gone head to head on this show and with uh, the US representative of the Billy Meyer stuff and then I was able Michael, to take yeah. one of Michael yeah we, we try not to mention his name on the show because we've had some very unpleasant dealings with him but the, the point being that he had challenged me to uh, analyze one of the photographs, which uh, I did very handily and was able to show that it was an absolute fabricated image. What do you think about the veracity of uh, his offered photographic evidence? I'm curious. Well, c- can I go back to the beginning? Um, it starts in, sure. in, in 1964 when I was uh, touring India with the London Symphony Orchestra. And in Delhi, one of the shops in the hotel, that uh, the Ashoka Hotel, I think it was, that uh, we were staying in, had an extraordinary amount of uh, paintings uh, and the artist was inside and they, they showed people's auras she painted I think Nero and people like that and hmm. uh, it was very interesting so and she she looked at me and she, she invited me and she says why don't you come in and we got talking and I got talking about my interest in UFOs and to cut a long story short she said Gosh, you must meet someone I know. He's, he's, he's been thrown out of India now, but um, uh, he's in Switzerland, and uh, you know you should try and see him. His name's Billy. Uh, he's Edward Meyer, and um, I eventually I spoke to another of his friends who gave me a cutting. Um, showing a picture of um, Maya, um, the time that he was expelled from India for, for vagrancy, I believe. And he was <laughs> then, I mean, he was telling stories then, um, which this lady, this artist, her name was Elizabeth Brunner. I think she was of Hungarian origin, but she was, she was a very, very interesting person. And uh, she thought that he was genuine. She said, oh, he's in love with a woman from another world. He's, he's, it's all he can think about. You know, his head's in the air. You must, you must get to meet him and everything. And finally, I tracked down Maya in Switzerland in 1965. I spoke to him on the telephone, and uh, he sounded uh, genuine at that time. But then, later on in Switzerland, he started coming out with all these series of photographs um, in the 1970s and I think late 60s too. And I was not convinced. And especially when I went to visit him, it was the first time I'd spent uh, time w- with him. I spent the uh, you know, best part of a day with him together with uh, Louis Zinstark, who lived in Switzerland and who I'd introduced to, uh, to, to Maya. Who'd spent, so she, she'd spent a lot more time with him. 
Hmm. And um, there was one occasion, I remember, when she took back, at that meeting with Lou and myself and Maya, Lou took back a photograph that someone had given her of Myers showing a model which looked absolutely identical to those, most of those seen in the photographs. And you can say, you know, he says, oh, well, I made this to look like some of the craft that I filmed and everything. But the trouble is it, it looks too, it looks too close for comfort. It really does look exactly the, yeah. the model. And he, he went absolutely red in the face. And uh, he sensed my my skepticism about this and also my skepticism about the movies that um, that I saw in a, uh, the, there was a special room there. You could go and watch his movies and everything. And I, I was very skeptical, I have to say, about a lot of it. And he apparently told Lou that I was never allowed to come back again mm. um, because I was asking too many skeptical questions. I also saw the most ludicrous movie film of Maya strutting about his farm with a ray gun, which he said the aliens had given him. Oh, uh, yes. All right? Oh, uh, we've seen And then the he showed me, yeah. then he showed me, he said, look, this is, this is where I'm, I made a hole right through the middle of this tree with the ray gun. And it looked to me like he drilled, um, without, you know, uh, quite a, a wide bore drill, drilled a hole in the tree and then sort of put burn marks around the outside to make it look convincing, you know. So I was none too impressed. And if you, if you see that movie of him strutting about with this ridiculous looking ray gun, it, you know, it just led to my feeling, I think, that he'd had genuine contact myself when he was in Jordan and India and um, other parts of the world. And I think he'd had experiences. But I think it all stopped. I don't know why. And then when he got to Switzerland, he thought, well, you know, I've got to, uh, you know, I've got to keep the whole thing going. So basically, he got his 15 minutes of fame and he wanted to make it 30 minutes of fame. Yeah. Okay. I, I think so. I think that, I think going back to Adamski and other cases of contacts, there are a number of these experiences that have generally been dismissed by UFO researchers. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's just the nature of the claim is so outlandish you can't accept it. But I think in part there may have been some kind of core experience that's being embellished, yeah. and that makes things so difficult. Yeah. But what you could also consider that regarding contacts, I mean, someone I knew who was Air Marshal Sir Peter Horsley, who was Deputy Chief of Strike Command in the 1950s. He was a decorated war hero pilot. He worked for the Queen and mostly for, for uh, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, at Buckingham Palace uh, in the 1950s um, as a sort of um, equerry. And he, in 1954, claims to have had a two-hour meeting with an extraterrestrial being, human-appearing, in the middle of London, arranged for him via a British Army general. And it sounds outrageous, but this guy is very down-to-earth. Um, he laid his reputation on the line when he first wrote about this in his book Sounds from Another Room, which he kindly allowed, he allowed me to, gave me generous extracts which, uh, from that book, which I was allowed to use. And um, uh, they're actually, some of those extracts are published in Alien Base, quite a lot actually, my book Alien Base, but also I've revisited the case in my latest book, Need to Know. Quite a lot of details about this this extraordinary encounter. Now, again, we come back to telepathy. Sir Peter was very skeptical. You imagine that he's grounded in the military. He's working, you know, for for royal family and everything, and so his credibility comes into question about making such claims. But he told me that not only 
was this alien able to read his mind totally, but he knew all Britain's top secret nuclear secrets, which was the most, I mean, he didn't put that, he, he, he didn't put that in his book, but he, he gave me that, uh, you know, some months before he died, he, he gave me that information, and he said, you know, it was very, very disturbing for him, and he tried to reestablish contact, but it was absolutely impossible, the guy disappeared, uh, the, the, the woman who'd arranged the contact had disappeared, the British Army General wouldn't talk about it, and so on, you know, blah, blah, it goes on and on, but uh, he said that experience was very real. And during that experience, he learned a great deal. What did he learn? Well, for example, for example, I mean, I, I, I can quote what the guy said. I mean, it's not verbatim, obviously, but it's what, it's what um, Sir Peter said. You know, he said he was told, this is what the guy said, since time immemorial there have been tales of vessels coming out of the sky bringing strange visitors. Observers do come among you and make contact on a very selective basis where they judge that such contact could not harm either party. These observers have studied Earth for a long time. With advanced medical sciences, they have been fitted with the right sort of internal equipment to allow their bodies to operate normally until they leave. Uh, it is not very difficult to obtain the right sort of clothing and means to move around quite freely. While you are still far away from traveling in deep space, bear in mind this was in 1954, such contacts will be infrequent and must be conducted in strict secrecy. The observers, that's meaning these alien beings, have very highly developed mental powers including extrasensory, thought reading, hypnosis, and the ability to use different dimensions and rely solely on their special powers to look after themselves. So that was just some of, of, of the information. And obviously a concern about the prospect of, of us blowing up planet Earth was, was paramount during this uh, discussion. It you seems, though, it, you've said something very interesting there, Timothy, and, and you know what I keep hearing here is the sense that these beings have extreme psychic abilities and ESP yes, abilities. definitely. Again, that explains so much of what we read about in cases of close encounters and in cases of things like lost time. What, but I think that what we, we could do with that is ex sort of extrapolate from that, that, again, we're in a situation where even what we think we perceive as another human being, you know, you're talking about these situations where you were, you've seen these people in public venues that you felt had something unusual about them, Mm -hmm. uh, certainly it's possible at that point that what you're really seeing is a screen projection of what these beings want you to think they look like. And, you know, th at that point, this calls into question. Um, I don't get that impression. I think if you'd met them, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get that impression. I don't doubt that they have that, that ability to do that. But I'm also quite sure that, uh, were, you know, that even if that they were in actual fact there, there was no question specifically back in, in 2006. I mean, absolutely no question about it at all. I mean, it was testified by, by many other people who were there. Oh, no, no, they're there, but they don't, are perhaps not what they don't actually look like what you think they look like. I, I didn't get that impression. I have to say, I didn't get that impression. All right. Yeah. 
I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're on the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're proud to be talking to Timothy Good, longtime UFO investigator, on this episode, spending all the evening with him. You know, one of the subjects we've discussed frequently on the show, and certainly we had Stanton Friedman and Betty Hill's niece on the show a few months yep. back with regard to their book. Now, in the Barney and Betty Hill experience back in the early 1960s, the entities they saw aboard the spacecraft re- called under hypnosis they saw the star map and later on the star map was interpreted by marjorie fish as being something that depicted zeta reticuli i believe okay mm-hmm. as if the beings were conveying the impression to the hills that they came from elsewhere and the question being of course is that something that they did just for entertainment value or investigative value or testing us or what well i have no idea but at any rate, that's what Betty recalled under hypnosis, wasn't it? Seeing that extraordinary uh, projection of a, of a sort of trade routes and um, and so forth, if I if I recall correctly. Okay, but then we come to the whole abduction scenario because that's considered right. to be, of course, the progenitor of abductions. But certainly, there are cases throughout the centuries yes. of people being taken captive by them or other races so the question here would be this is happening so often are all these abductions or a large portion indicative of something that's really going on or are some of them government experiments some of them just some kind of memory implanted by a bad hypnotic regression session all of the above possibly (laughs) Um, i would say i would say uh, first of all you know i think it's something like three and a half million americans claim to have been abducted right Mm. according to polls. 
I do not think for one moment that three and a half million Americans have actually been abducted. But if you take like the percentage of unexplained UFOs, which is, let's say, 10% are genuinely unexplained, you could apply the same to the abductions. So, you know, fewer people. I don't Okay, know but that. 3 million to 300,000, yeah. that's still a lot of abductions. It, of course, of course. But I do think, I do think the abductions are a reality. I don't think there's uh, so much of it going on right now, I have to say. That's the, the feeling I get, and a lot of researchers uh, share, share uh, we all feel the same about that. I think an awful lot of people um, are, are wannabes, sad, sometimes lonely people or mentally deranged people, um, you know, who claim they've been abducted. I mean, there's some really wild stories you can, I'm sure you're familiar with, with many of them, but um, I did spend a lot of time with Betty Hill in the 1970s and um, investigating and, and so forth, and I found her completely, uh, completely credible, I have to say. And I've met other people who've had abductions, and there is this perception that you know it's just a little gray, the little gray guys with the, with the black beady eyes that you know are doing the abducting. This is nonsense. Um, if you really study the literature, all all types of aliens, from the humanoids to the bug-eyed creatures, and and many others besides, have been responsible for uh, different types of, of abductions over over the over the decades, maybe maybe much longer. And people from all walks of life um, as well. And if you think of Travis Walton case, um, again, I find that a very credible case. Um, I spent time talking to him in Arizona. I think he had a genuine experience, and he saw human types on board the craft, as well as these biological robots, which I think I referred to earlier on. And he had, there was absolutely no communication at all. He, he spoke to them. They just smiled kindly at him, and that was it. And he was there for a few days, disappeared. I, I find that a very genuine story, I must say. But there are different, it's not just the bug-eyed beings that are doing this, you know? It really isn't. Well, it's always seemed odd that in looking at, stepping back and looking at the UFO craft phenomenon, the morphology, the huge, vast array of types yeah. of craft yeah. that have been spotted, um, it, it does seem to suggest, certainly, that we're talking about the interactions being with more than just one species. If we take a, a bigger view of this, yes, it does appear that, you know, if you look, you talk about the, the gray beings with the large black eyes um, mm -hmm. and the way that they play this predominant role, but not yeah. not all not all encompassing role in terms of the abductions. Yeah. It's almost as if, to my mind, this points yeah. towards the potential of those beings being either A, as you pointed out before, some kind of, some kind of biological robot, some kind of a yeah. cyborg entity. Or, as our friend Jeff Ritzman has pointed out, yeah. in his interactions with these things, and he does claim to have had a variety of mm -hmm. really strange interactions with these beings, and one of them, one of his experiences, underscores the idea that these are even potentially, in many cases, a form of physical projection that mm -hmm. these are not even really necessarily real beings, that their their presence is perhaps some sort of a, even to, to you know, sort of go into the sci-fi direction with it, a, a multidimensional projection from somewhere else that has a certain time that they can manifest in this dimensional framework, and then essentially yeah. they, they, they have to cease being here, mm -hmm. or maybe they don't have a choice. So... 
when we get into talking about this, um, I think it, it is really important, and, and you alluded to it earlier in the conversation, Timothy, it's important to delineate and differentiate between what it might be some species here on the planet long term versus other species that visit in a sort of a more temporary yeah. fashion. Now, yeah. when people hear this, Timothy, they I think there's a, a sense of disbelief in in terms of, well, why would you potentially have all of these species visiting this mundane planet here in this mundane solar system in this outer reach of a somewhat mundane galaxy what would you what would you say to people who pose well, i think I mean, i'd say several things first of all earth has reached a critical stage in its evolution i'm sure it's reached such critical stages before by the way hmm. if you think of the geological turmoils that, that our planet has undergone over over the billions of years um also i think all the races that talk about Earth do say that it is actually unique in, in the, you know, it is relatively unique in terms of the, the enormous biodiversity on this planet. Mm. And they say it's a, it's a wonderful planet. Uh, all the genuine contacts, when I say genuine ones, contacts that I believe to be genuine, people I've known over a long time who right. had experience or, or being taken up in craft or whatever, say that they are told that this is, this is a fabulous planet in terms of its biological diversity and beauty and so forth, and it's just a pity that we're destroying it and so on and so forth. But let me, let me add here that I have had abduction-type experiences for many, many years. Some of them, how can I say, let me start with, with uh, so-called night paralysis or sleep paralysis. I think many, many millions of people have had that. And the question is, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you have you ever experienced night paralysis? Personally, I know that I've had things that I would say, I've had experiences that might fall into that category, yes. Right. Now, you know, for many years I thought, well, this could be related to the abduction. I had been reading, this was, it started, I would say, in the 1980s. Mm. Late 1980s, um, I would wake up in the middle of the night, uh, in the small hours, unable to move, with a vibration on my solar plexus. Uh, it seemed to be like a vibration in my solar plexus area. And I'd be fully conscious. I mean, I wasn't dreaming. And on one occasion with my girlfriend of that, of that time, I mean, uh, she, I was able eventually to indicate that the, these things are going on and she, she witnessed uh, these things and herself experienced things like this and um, would happen in my case I never saw anybody in the in the bedroom at the time it was I have to say it was always uh, in bed at night in the small hours really small hours like three 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 o'clock and that sort of time mm -hmm. three o'clock four o'clock it was accompanied by a sense of, of fear I have to say I never saw anything it was like a buzzing, vibrating experience in the solar plexus, getting worse and worse until you get more and more paralyzed. And one, the only way I could get rid of it was by tremendous resistance, by shouting, you know, get out or whatever. I used much more colorful terms than that, but uh, it seemed to sort of break, break it eventually. And, uh, and that was okay. And then it would start again and then it would abate. And I've had that over, over a period of many, many years, but decreasing with age, I suppose. I don't know. But, um, I will say that on two occasions, I, on only two occasions out of the hundred or so times that I've had that experience, have I ever seen anything that could remotely be construed with UFOs? 
And that was the last time, for example, was um, the year before last, uh, 2006. I know exactly what time I went to sleep. I put my book down at five, five, uh, five of one in the morning, and uh, the next thing I knew, I was in a country lane. It felt like that on the ground. I could see the, the sky. I couldn't see stars, but it was a country lane. I could feel the cool air, and there was this triangle in the sky, fixed. It was like it was stuck in the sky, gray triangle with white lights all along each each of the three rims it pointed at the at the uh, apex apexes uh, nothing happened except I suddenly felt very very paralyzed and as if I was being drawn up in it and I fought it and I resisted it and the next thing I knew I was in my back in my room I've probably been there all the time but um, there I was and 10 minutes had elapsed it was five past one so I was able to time all that thing was I taken was I was that an actual craft or was it just part of a dream related to the um, paralysis I'm very objective about these things as I hope you've gathered by now I don't jump to the conclusion that I was abducted, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I just don't know. Have you thought of undergoing hypnotic regression to see? Or? Yes, and in fact, um, last year, uh, Bud Hopkins regressed me, or, or tried to, um, in New York, but he was unable to put me under, unfortunately. You weren't, you weren't the kind of person who was very... Uh I'm not. Very, I think you know. Give me a dose of sodium pentothal or something. Maybe that'll do it. <laughs> that'll do it for anybody. <laughs> well, see, but this is one of the things that we see, Timothy, in all realms of the paranormal world. Is that yeah? There is this uh, reality that if you are open-minded about these things, and if if you invite them, they flood into your world. You know, the, the certainly we can look at all sorts of cases of people claiming abductions, and in many of these cases, uh, people might be frightened, but they're fascinated by the experience, and they want this to happen. And it does happen until they actively resist and they demand that the thing stop. At that point, things change a little bit. But you brought up the, the fear issue that you were waking up and you said you, you had this tremendous mm-hmm. sense of fear. I'm coming to the conclusion personally, and Gene may or may not share this with me, but I think that this this whole thing about fear is a key point in discussing how mechanisms of control are implemented. I think that mm-hmm. you know we talk about fear being part of the, the 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 sort of the proverbial animal brain, but I just wonder if maybe the animal part of the brain has been engineered in a way that you know when this fear happens. It does paralyze us, and maybe there's a reason for this. Maybe this was put into us as a way for a species that had some genetic involvement in our evolution. To control us. Mm-hmm. Control us, sure. Well, yeah. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can host I can and as a matter of fact they provide all our hosting too for this site and guess what their price starts at only $7 a month how could you go wrong it's reliability and speed speaks for itself and that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now it's host I can give them a try you'll be glad you did to learn more about host I can Go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO. 
reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos, and it's all for free. Or drop us a line, MrUFO at WebTV.net. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You're talking to Timothy Good, longtime UFO investigator and author. And okay, the fear factor programmed into us genetically, whatever. What do you think? Well, quite honestly, I don't know. I, I haven't a clue, but I keep a very open mind about that possibility. There, there was something, by the way, you said before, Timothy, I want to acknowledge. And again, acknowledge it because it's been a topic on this show before. Why are we of interest to these beings? What is it that makes this planet and us of interest? And I think that you, you hit the, the issue right on, right on the head. It comes down to the incredible genetic diversity of life mm-hmm. on this planet. I think that, that ultimately, if we ever come to a real understanding of what's actually happening here, we're going to find out that in many ways we are the seed bank for this part of the galaxy. I think that's a very good, that's a very well put uh, theory there, I have to say. Is that a good thing or a bad thing to be the seed bank? (laughs) I don't know, but um, I hadn't looked at it like that. But, you know, a number of the aliens have said that that, that they've been abducting not just just, uh, humans for for experimental purposes, uh, hybridization and so forth, but uh, animals, plants, fish, a whole lot, you know, and uh, it's even been indicated that um, in the event of life being destroyed on this planet, everything will be will be replicated elsewhere. I think that's uh, reasonable. I don't know if it's true, but that's what, that's what has been said. Well, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that if we look at how life is so adaptable on this planet, how, you know, we, we get under the ice in the Arctic, and what do we find? We find ecosystems. We were yeah. sure there'd be nothing, um, and boom. There they are. Um, I think that speaks quite a bit of the robustness of life on this planet. And maybe this is something that other beings in other places find useful. It would certainly explain, to my mind, the large variety of uh, ship morphologies that we're looking at. It would make sense that... You know, if you've got if you've got a place that's got really good food, everybody travels from all over the place to go there hmm. to go eat. Hey, you know, I want to raise a subject and moving a little bit away from abductions, but to something else yeah. because we have maybe a half hour, thirty one minutes left. Mm-hmm. Space exploration after we landed on the moon, the space program pretty much fell apart. And there's a story on the news today that says the quote. The headline here, money for manned mission to Mars endangered by spending bill. So right now we're talking about 
possibly going to Mars, a manned expedition oh, sometime right. yeah. in 2015, 2020. And now this bill, of course, the NASA authorization was approved back in 2005. Now they're talking about maybe not spending the money. Now, the question is, is this our government talking? We don't really want to get out there or maybe this other race is encouraging us not to go out there. I, I don't know. I, I need to read the story and, uh, um, in, in depth. Um, maybe there's going to be some comment. Has there been any kind of comment in the, in the, in the media about it? Any speculation? Well, I'll send you a copy of the story for further review. But the key here, of course, is that it's not so much an opinion piece. It's just an article about what's going on, which apparently at least from what I see that the emphasis on space exploration is not what it used to be. I mean, we look at the shuttle program, we're using spacecraft that were built based on designs 30 years old and very troublesome, very bug prone, very dangerous. Yes, but I think there's an above top secret space program going on and has been for, for a long time. That's my opinion. And I think that there is, as I said earlier, liaison with some of these beings and some of those beings um, are working with our scientists like those in NASA for example. Even Ben Rich who, who was the sort of head of engineering at the Skunk Works, Lockheed Skunk Works which developed the U-2 and the stealth uh, planes, he, he said to two friends of mine in the presence of two friends of mine uh, both publicly and then in person afterwards that we this was back in well I forget the exact uh, I could look it up but it's like I think the early 1990s he said that we already have the technology to go to the stars it's just a question of a few equations but we, we actually have have the have the technology and uh, he didn't he didn't sort of volunteer any more information but there's also the extraordinary information that was uh, which I've got in the last last chapter of my book need to know the extraordinary information uh, d- recovered or rather uh, th- this was hacked into by a guy called Gary McKinnon sure. and he was arrested in 2002 I expect you know about it um, absolutely he's, he's, yes. a, he's a lovely guy actually and he feels very very bad about what he's done now obviously since he faces uh, extradition um, and he was threatened with you know he could be in prison for up to 65 something years in the states and the, the, the legal things are still going on hopefully it will turn out alright in the end but uh, it's been looking bad for him for quite some time but uh, anyway, he was he was arrested in Britain under the Computer Misuse Act for having hacked, with relative ease, I have to add, into numerous military networks. And he was astonished, I have to say, uh, <laughs> to find that these networks, Pentagon networks, secret stuff and everything, were, were using Windows. Can you imagine? Well, you see, that I was going to basically mention that joke that the Army is using Macs, but the Pentagon is using Windows. They That's are ridiculous. absolutely, absolutely. Mm. But what he with what he discovered was absolutely startling. Um, I, I, you, I don't know to what extent you've found, but he said one of the most. What he told me was the most important information he uncovered related to. Air Force Space Command, okay? Uh, He told me he found a list of officers' names under the heading non-terrestrial officers. I found a list, he said, I also found a list of fleet-to-fleet transfers and a list of ship names. I looked up them, I looked up the the names of the ships and he said they weren't U.S. Navy ships. What I saw made me believe they had some kind of spaceship off-planet. 
And then he saw an image on his PC of the Earth, or at least he, he qualified it a blue and white planet with no continents visible, which filled two-thirds of the screen. And midway between the camera and the planet hung a cigar-shaped object with geodesic domes above, below, and to the left and right. He couldn't see any rivet seams or telemetry antennae or anything like that. And I, I just got to thinking, non-terrestrial officers. Now, you know, I think there's a, li a liaison program, and it's quite possible there are some people, even perhaps in limited extent in the military, who could be from elsewhere. Who knows? I mean, what are what or who are non-terrestrial officers? Well, if we find that these entities look very much like us, I guess they could pass without anyone knowing. Yeah. Maybe we're well, having lunch with them right now. I never know. Maybe they're serving me lunch. You know, they're pretending to be an illegal immigrant from South America, and I go to the Boston market or to one right. of my favorite fast food joints. That's an yeah. alien, you know. Right. Well, but, you know, all joking aside, sure. the problem with this topic, of course, and, and – I was cl very closely following the Gary McKinnon situation. Mm -hmm. uh, in many ways, Gary was his own worst enemy. Uh, if if you're going to talk yes. about these things publicly, don't mention that you were smoking big, huge joints it, while you were doing this. Exactly. It's, yes. Yes. This is gonna. This yes. is gonna. It's gonna tarnish any kind of credibility you could possibly claim. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, so you know, there, there's problems with that. Now, now that's let's put that aside for a moment. The, the bigger problem, and this is where you know the, this field is very problematic. I think is, is that you have certain stories that come out, and there are these little chunks of titillating, tantalizing information, but then they crash into these other things. Like I, I'm just going to bring this up because we had covered this a, a, a bit last year on the show, uh, Timothy. The whole Serpo thing, the whole Serpo story oh, that came, oh, which yeah. was just nonsense. I mean, Gene actually very quickly pegged it as a teenager's writing style. I mean, Gene yeah. was, was really fast about that. When I remember Gene said, hey, you know what? This looks to me like a kid wrote it. That's right, because uh, of the very naive yeah. the naive approach to sexual and bathroom habits that you imagine an 11 or 12-year-old kid talking about. Right. Yeah, you know, oh, it's so, bullshit. I mean, there's another one going now. I've forgotten. I've, I've, I've just been busy deleting all yeah. the stuff I'm getting. I'm getting on the internet about it, and you can probably fill it. I can't. I, can't. I don't think we it, want it, to. No, yeah, no. It's enough to drive you crazy. So, so Timothy, my question to you about this then is, what do you personally do? You've been obviously researching this stuff for for a long, long time. Yeah. So, what do you do? What methods do you deploy to filter? The signal from the noise. What do you? How do you get around so much of this nonsense? Well, I think it's most important to know uh, the person. You know, get to know the person making the claim. Sometimes get to know their friends. Uh, people can be deluded, as, as you're well aware. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of deluded people around who who are very very convincing because they they themselves are convinced that they're talking the truth even if they're just right. you know hallucinating or deluded. But uh, it is important to get to know to check the credibility of the witness. That's the most I would think that's the most important thing really. But beyond that, let's say you are dealing with things where you don't have direct access to the to the origin. What do you do well, then? What can you do? I mean, you know, we're getting all these photographs of UFOs on 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 the internet, for example, and taken with digital and, and other cameras. Most of them absolute nonsense, nothing to do with genuine genuine article. Right. So it's partly gut instinct, sort of knee jerk reaction. You can. 
you just have to make make a judgment based on what's available to you. you know, it's very difficult to assess everything finally as one would like all the time, isn't it? Do you not no, agree? Ab- absolutely. I think one of the things that, that I usually do, and I've, I've received some flack for this, is that I look at motives, and specifically I look at profit motives. Um, Last year, we had on not once but twice a fellow by the name of Jim Sparks, who yeah. makes some incredibly bizarre claims. And yes, we had we had him on the show, and I had asked him a question. So, you know, when I asked you, you know, how do you how do you sift through the signal, you know, through through all of the noise and get the actual signal? Well, in the case when we had Jim Sparks on, he has this very well honed, obviously rehearsed spiel that he does, and um, and he's going through it. And what I find very useful is to ask a non ask something that is completely non sequitur just completely outside of his flow of of presentation to see how he responds and he had claimed that he had been taken aboard and the ships and was going through these eight or nine hour training periods. They were trying to teach him the alphabet. Oh yeah, this, this all smelled and so and and it, you'll, I think you'll appreciate this, Timothy. Why I'm retelling the story right in the middle of one of these things. I said to him, "Hey Jim, let me ask you a quick question. How did you go to the bathroom?" and this completely caught him off guard. I said, what, "What?" I said, "Well, if you're sitting in for for nine hours in a place, and you know, I would have to imagine at some point you'd have to, you know, urinate." Yeah. Well, yeah. And it just completely he was he was busted. He went to this little thing. Well, uh, I've always been really good at holding it, and uh, it didn't really matter because at the end they always extracted semen. So when they did that, that's when I took the the occasion and and. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, and and to me that little that little detour, which a bunch of our listeners wrote in afterwards, saying, "Why did David ask that? That doesn't make any sense at all." Well, to me, it was the most obvious thing to ask, and it was the clear, for as far as I'm concerned, it was the smoking gun that this guy basically was making everything up. And uh, when confronted with a question he didn't have a prepared answer for, it blew yeah. him off completely off course. He had to ad lib. Absolutely. And not every actor can ad-lib very well. No. Okay. So, you know, certainly uh, uh, we found that on the show to be a useful technique. And, and again, so the problem, Timothy, uh, this is where we try to make this show somewhat useful is to try to get the conversation to the point where it's somewhat in the realm of being reasonable. But do you find, I mean, because you, you've had pretty wide media exposure for many years, do you find that there is ever a possibility of introducing these topics to the mainstream in a way that would be constructive? Tell me about it. <laughs> uh, this is my one of my major ambitions in life is to get the subject treated seriously by the media. I have a press card, okay? I'm not a journalist as such, but I'm a writer. And, you know, I mean, I need a press card for, for various reasons, for, 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 you know, interviewing people and, and getting press passes and so forth. Sure. Absolutely essential. But I abide by the rules of journalism um, to the best of my, my ability, and I have been trying to interest the, the mainstream media in this subject for a long time. I, I've not won the, the fight, I have to say. But... More than ever, the latest book is, is, is intended to reach 
a wider audience of people uh, and, and the media. I contact as many people in the media as I can about my book because there's not much really that can be that can be rubbished in there since there's so much uh, backup with documentation and historic. It's, a, it's really a history of military intelligence regarding the subject and uh, it's classified. The American edition is classified under military history. Uh-oh. <laughs> which doesn't stop it, of course, being as, as we can dumped, get a copy. dumped, you know, between magic spells and self-help in the in the bookstores. Oh boy! Which, which is is a you know it's a killer. Very effective way of of dealing with the subject, you know, is to put it in the, in the new age uh, psychobabble section of the bookstore. You mean out of sight, out of mind? Hey. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany. We have roughly 17 more minutes to spend with Tim Good. And, Tim, before you leave the show, we're going to ask you to talk about the books in, for a few minutes towards the end of the episode. Right now, okay. I want to ask you, since we've kind of reached that point, and I think it follows logically, the talk of disclosure back in the 50s, of course, Major Donald Kehoe, and then with NICAP, pushed to have congressional hearings to disclose UFO information. And certainly the press conferences, the ones that were held by the Disclosure Project, the one held in November, kind of requesting some kind of disclosure. So the question comes up, are we being prepared for eventual disclosure, near-term disclosure, or will it never happen? I can't think, given that you know we may not be in full control of the situation, full disclosure is ridiculous. It would not be constructive, and there's no way any government or those very few people in government, let's, let's be honest about this, I mean, very few people in government are, have the faintest idea of what's going on. Oh, boy, you know, yes. There are relatively few people who have that sufficiently high clearance to, you know, to get access to this kind of information. I was thinking that was a general political comment. 
uh, <laughs> I think there's no way uh, it, they can come out with all of it. And, and supposing they did, would you trust your government to come out with the truth? Exactly. Would anybody, would anybody trust their government to come out with the truth about the situation? It's bound to have some spin on it, and it would lead to a deluge of questions which, which um, they wouldn't be allowed to answer. Well, in our case in the United States, the Congress only has an 11 percent approval rating. We don't believe anything the government says. We just don't. Yeah. How does it stand in the UK? Well, um, you know, the Ministry of Defence is is starting to release quite a lot of material. A lot coming out, just come out this year and last year and the year before and the year before that. Uh, a lot of it, there's, there's thousands of pages online now. A lot of stuff. The French government has released a lot of stuff. And this, you could say this is a sort of step towards disclosure, but they're not really releasing any of the above top secret information, you know, the uh, really, really sensitive information. And they can't, and they won't. I'm convinced of it. There's no way they could do that without compromising all sorts of delicate, um, especially the liaison program, which is the most sensitive thing. The fact that there are some people, a very few, in the United States government and the military, not just in your country, but um, elsewhere, you know, who have had or are continuing to have uh, communication with some of these beings, and they're not going to want everything to come out. No way. Well, it certainly appears that in the case of the Rendlesham episode, there seemed to be some high level of communication going on and some foreknowledge that these things were coming down. So I, I think that supports the idea that there's some level of communication going on. Now, some of the more extreme reports had these beings of these craft floating in the air in front of military officers engaged in some form of... Some of the, some of the reports, yes. I, I don't yeah. know how, how true all those, some of those witnesses are, are sort of slightly dubious in, in, in some respects, uh, in my mm. opinion. But for, for sure, I mean, at that press conference in November at the National Press uh, Club, there, there was uh, one of the witnesses, Jim Penniston, who actually touched... Of that craft that came yeah. down outside yeah. those twin U.S. Air Force bases, you know, and Colonel Holt was there. He saw some of this activity, and yeah. uh, he's confirmed it. So, I mean, that's extraordinary, but but it doesn't amount to an official disclosure, unfortunately. No. I mean, it, it might help towards getting, you know, governments to open up a bit more, or they might feel embarrassed themselves, you know, there's no way we can we can sit on all this stuff indefinitely. I mean, it's beginning to look ridiculous. But unfortunately, if you talk to the average person in the street, most, I, I don't know, I see polls saying that most people think the Americans are covering up stuff about you first. I don't know. But there's an awful lot of people think it's complete nonsense. I'm sure you've spoken to people. I speak to them every day who just look at you in astonishment if you take any of this stuff seriously that's the general i would say that's the general tendency of many members of the majority of members of the public in my experience well i, I would have to agree with that timothy in my own discussions about these topics with, with some of my closest friends uh, there are some of them who are interested in this very few of them really have any handle on my interest in the topic and if I'm ever brave enough to bring up my own personal experiences they look at me as if I'm a little off kilter which yeah. I'm, I'm used to them looking at me that way anyway because I'm a little strange to begin with but yeah no you, you, you know what, what we have is a situation where if you talk about an unidentified flying object and, and my personal stance is that I don't know what these things are I just know that I've seen things in the sky that are not our t current technology, and that's as yeah. far as I'm willing to go. 
Yeah, I was very interested, by the way, in that, that uh, what you what you related there about, um, you know, did you say, it was, was it Venezuela or South it's America? Caracas, Caracas, Venezuela, in the summer of 1974. 74. Um, yeah, yeah. The fifth episode of the Paracast has my brother and myself on the show talking in depth about, oh, right. okay. about what we saw. It was an extreme sighting. But, you know, what, what I was going to say before was that it, it's fascinating how, you know, if you're a presidential candidate like Kucinich and you mention UFOs, you're ridiculed in the media. But by the same token, Mike Huckabee just won the, a primary in Iowa, and he won it basically on the stance of his being an evangelical uh, a Christian, and this is fascinating. That you know, if you're going to be a, a, a successful presidential candidate, you better proclaim your belief in Christ. But God forbid, no pun intended, yeah. you should talk about UFOs. Oh, that scene is fringe. It, I think, to my way of seeing things, folks, this is clear evidence for me that there is some mass level of psychological manipulation going on that is making us as a species completely irrational you know it's okay to talk to god but not to talk to aliens right oh i think that's one extreme it's okay to believe in something you can't see that has the benefit of two thousand years of branding yeah and probably in you know some some form of very subtle psychological indoctrination that's okay but if you speak about something that you've actually seen with your own eyes yeah. and that you and a few hundred or a few thousand other people saw with their own eyes well no that's problematic to me, that's so irrational that I have to think that it is. It, it's there's something unusual about it. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and and going further along those lines, and something my girlfriend and I have spoken about quite a bit, is what seems to be the mesmerization effects of television and the and computer and TV screens. There's something about our visual cortex and the refresh rate. Yeah. of computer monitors and television sets that, I mean, I'm coming to believe, and, and what, the term belief is important, I don't know this, I believe it, and you can believe in anything. Mm. But I'm coming to potentially believe that there is something about these devices that mesmerize us as a species, regardless of cultural upbringing, regardless of ethnic background. You watch a a child, a five or six or seven year old child from any culture, put them down in front of a television set and they go slack jawed and they start staring into that screen yeah. and you see the little puddle of drool forming at their feet. <laughs> I, I don't think what that's about accident. subliminal messages, David, do you think that we're getting in those blanking intervals getting messages to obey? I don't think it's that it's that okay, crazy. Okay. But at this point I, I'm willing to say that along those lines, the use of broadcast media, specifically the television set and the display as a mesmerization device that is affecting us in a subliminal, perhaps, maybe not so subliminal fashion, I think one could take a scientific stance on this and come up with some very interesting knowledge. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I agree. Boy, that was simple. <laughs> but, but also, you know, when you talk to, to scientists or talk to people about who, who are very interested in science and say, where's the scientific evidence? And I say, well, there's tons of scientific evidence, per se, as to scientific proof. Please be aware of the difference between public science and private science. Most people mm. do not consider the fact that thousands of scientists work on top-secret projects. 
related to black budget programs in your country and other countries, all sorts of things, uh, including uh, very much, of course, the, the UFO situation. And many science, uh, scientific intelligence personnel are working in that, but they can't, they can't, they can't release this information. They can't publish it in Scientific American or what have you. They can't discuss it with their colleagues who don't have high security clearances. So there's a huge, important difference between publicly available science and science, which is highly classified. And, of course, all the proof is there within the, the scientific um, intelligence community, but it's not available to the man in the street for obvious reasons. Right. Right. I think that's a very important distinction. Thank you for bringing that up, Timothy. I think some people realize there is the facade reality, then there's the actual reality. Yeah. And I think that if we look back at the history of this planet, that the same holds true. There is the accepted history of what this planet is and how we got here. And then there is another thing, which is yeah. the actual reality. And, and unfortunately, I think one has precious little to do with the other. You know, you raise the point that I've mentioned a few times in the course of some of my discussions, which is history, that if you watch the talking heads on cable TV news, they cannot agree with what happened yesterday or 10 minutes ago. So right. we're asked to depend on one particular history book that we are given in school to tell us what happened 300 years ago, 500 years ago. We're yeah. depending on this for our history, and frankly... How can you believe a word of it? Yeah, I agree with you. You're very agreeable, Timothy. This is <laughs> We're not used to this on our show. We're right now amazed that we're being agreed with. In fact, at this point, you're right now number one on our popularity list. We're saying, you know, Tim Good is just a wonderful guy. And I, we have maybe three, four minutes left, and I don't want you to leave without giving you a full opportunity to talk about your books. And you've got that most recent title, which went on sale in the USA. If I could USA. plug my new book, please, please. go ahead and plug it. You have three All or four right. minutes. Go for it, man. It is called Need to Know, UFOs, the Military and Intelligence. It's published by Pegasus Books of New York at sixteen ninety five and it is should be available in most uh, bookstores. I've have some reports that it, when it first came out, there were problems with distribution. So, for example, when they had that, it came out last October. It came out in October, but it was not in many bookstores when it came out because of very poor distribution. But I think that situation's changed now. But in any case, you you can you can get it on Amazon. It's much cheaper than 16.95, of course. But of course, but uh, it, as far as I'm concerned, it's it's my most important book to date because you know there's a there's a fantastic expose of, of, of including new top secret documents, discussions with military and, and intelligence uh, personnel, pilots, politicians, scientists, and I think you know it starts off with the with the alarmingly high number of aircraft crashes following military attacks on UFOs when the Americans first began to shoot at these things. The fact that hundreds of, of aircraft, including airliners and military planes, not just in the United States, were actually crashing um, as a result of our having started to fire at. UFOs. The fact that there is a conflict going on with some of these beings. I've got also an extraordinary um, stories of, of, of President Kennedy being taken to see alien bodies at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida in 1961-62. 
Um, there's information provided by John Lair, I'm sure you're familiar with him, um, provided by a surgeon who he interviewed, a surgeon who interviewed on an alien captured by the Brazilian army in 1996, which I find uh, very credible. And the book actually has a foreword by an aviation uh, expert, one of the world's leading aviation uh, historians, Bill Gunston, fellow of the Royal Aeronautical Society. So, you know, it's not, it's, it's a book that should be widely available to those skeptical members of the public. People think I write books, a lot of ufologists think I write books for them, you know, but so we have to consider the general public here. It, it's most important that we, get, we really get this subject out to the, general, to the general public more in a sort of sensible way. Hmm. The book is called Need to Know UFOs, the Military and Intelligence. It's now on paperback in both the UK, also US and Canada, yeah. from Amazon. Tim's site... Can I give you, can I give you my website? Please it's, go uh, ahead. It, it's www.timothygood.co.uk. I say it again, www.timothygood.co.uk. And that's all lowercase. Right. And if you forget that, we have, we'll have it linked over at thepowercast.com. Okay. And there's uh, a contact uh, email number there as well. Sure. This way you're able to get in touch with Timothy Good. Just as I have, mm-hmm. I sent him an email just a moment ago, and maybe we'll talk about it in our future session, about the Mars space program, how things are just going downhill from here. What are your plans for the next year or two? Lectures, more books, what? Well, I'm, I'm hoping to get more lectures in, you know. I have no plans for another book at the moment. I'm still recovering from the last uh-huh. one. You, you, my, my property is littered with top-secret documents and files all over the place, and I need to get all that tidied up. I mean, it takes me a long time to recover after writing a book, I tell you. Okay. So uh, I'm still on the fiddle. I still do concerts and so forth, mostly concerts these days on, um, as a violinist. Okay. But anyway, it sounds great, and we, there we are. Very I shall much. be in the states. I shall be in the states in April, by the way, at the uh, Eureka Springs conference. Okay, and you can get information about that. It's in April. Uh, if you if you go to uh, Lucius Farish's uh, website for the, the Ozark UFO conference at Eureka Springs, it's www.ozarkufo.com. What a small Ozarkufo.com. world! I've known yeah. you, Lucius Farish for many many years, Timothy Good. Thank you so much for joining us this week on the Paracast. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Timothy. We appreciate it. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.